Hey guys, um, yeah, so much appreciate all the help and prayers. Uh, we had a small wedding by Vincent Standards yesterday, but God provided beautiful weather, clouds to keep the sun off of us, and uh, held the rain off. And uh, Mike mentioned that uh, uh, you know subbing in, and I, I knew that they would, or elders are always good about helping out when we need some, uh, some breaks or, or a change in the schedule. I felt like we had this, and when I got into this message, I mean, I, it really drove me. Uh, Got to admit, I'm a little tired, but uh, uh, let's see what we can do here. Uh, we are continuing through the Sermon on the Mount. We're in chapter 7, and... Uh, uh, we're going to go on now to starting in verse 7. And a little bit small, but uh, let's see if we can get through this. It's a little longer passage that we're going to be dealing with today. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. This is one of the more familiar off-quoted passages in the scriptures. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks to whom? To whom the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Can you imagine a more comforting statement with which to face life. With all the uncertainties and unknowns of the future, this is really the core of the biblical teaching that we find in the Sermon on the Mount. Ask and it shall be given you. And Jesus wants to be clear, so he repeats it. For everyone who asks, receives. This is a clear and absolute promise. Even better, it doesn't come from an infomercial or from the government. It comes from the very Son of God who speaks with the authority of His and our Father. Problem is, to be understood, the the promise that He makes here, which is an absolute promise, must be taken in context. So, have a cookie for you today. We're going to show a video. And what I want you to do is listen to what these people say and then think. Listen and think. Okay? Here we go. Just about three minutes long. Good morning, y'all. Jesus is still Lord. Help me, Pat. And the, the word, word works. works. Now, you had a little fault the other day, so just go ahead and preach it. Well, you know, in, in Matthew 6, Jesus said, Seek first, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things shall be added unto you. Well, the word seek actually means to require of. In other words, what he's saying is, Come to my kingdom first, come to me first, 
and I will add those things to you. See, that's a guarantee. Well, then in Matthew 7, 7, which, of course, the Bible wasn't divided. When Jesus talked, he didn't stop and say chapter. This was a continuing continuation of him explaining to us how to receive. So he said, ask, and it shall be given unto you. Excuse so, me. Ask, and he knows what you need, and he'll give you something else. That's not what he said. He said, ask, and we have to renew our mind to that's the way he's thinking. Well, but we all know that God don't just give you whatever you ask for. Come on, preach now. Well, that's religion. But Jesus himself said, ask, and it shall be given unto you. What is the it? The thing that you ask for, right? Exactly. So, of course, you first decide what do you desire. And then... You just go to him and you ask him for the thing that you desire. Well, the thought that came to me was uh, when we first believed God for our first airplane, we asked God for a uh, Cherokee, uh, Cherokee 6, I believe it's a Piper. Piper PA-32. And we, we specified exactly what we desired. Well, then several years later, I just asked the Lord. I said, why didn't you give us a jet first? He said, because you asked for a Cherokee. Come on, preach. So the key is, and another time when um, I was just so thrilled over another lady minister, she received a house that she had believed God for. And I was just rejoicing over that. And I said, Lord, I'm just so grateful for her to have that. She deserves it. He said she didn't get it because she deserves it. She got it because she asked for it. Come on. Okay, the good news is, is everybody, every one of his children get the same opportunity to come to the throne room. It's not based on our what we do or what we don't do. It's based on the fact that we are his child and that we can get every petition answered from him because he said, ask and it shall be given unto you. And then the next verse says, for everyone, and I like to add this, every one of my children that ask receives. And he that seeks finds. He didn't mince words about that. He said, everyone that asks receives. And, and I've, I've shared this with you before, but I remember when one of our sons prayed for a horse. We didn't have a barn. We didn't know a thing about a horse. But because he asked God for it and believed God for it, he got a horse. So the thing that you receive is the it. it. Come on, help me. Is the it, it that you ask for. for. We got to go. Jesus is Lord and the, the word, word works. works. <laughs> All right. Now, doesn't it say, ask and it shall be given you? What can be so confusing? Okay, that's what it says, right? On the other hand, doesn't that view, and I'm sorry, I don't know who those people were. I don't know anything about them. I don't, I'm not making fun of them or whatever. But there is that view out there. Doesn't that make God into a genie who's telling us your wish is my command? What, what happens when the Haitian villager 
prays in earnest for food to feed her children. Or the inner city child prays just to know who his father is. Or the family of a godly Christian prays for healing from a terminal illness. And it doesn't happen. These kinds of teachers go to their default position. They know the answer. Don't worry. Honey, you just don't have enough faith. Right? Now we can all agree. Faith is essential to asking God for anything. But we've got to understand our context here. We've got to look beyond the first two verses. There's a reference on your handout there uh, to a, a previous message. Uh, and it is uh, back in 2010. It's called the Poverty Gospel. And you can get there on the website. And I'm, I'm giving you that not so you'll listen to my message, but at the very beginning of that message, we played, I don't know whether it was audio or video or whatever, but it was a short message from a guy named John Piper. And if you have any doubts about this, what we're saying here, any doubt about this, you listen to that short clip, and it will hit you between the eyes. I just warn you, you'll be hit between the eyes if you go there and listen to that. But I want to urge everybody here, to look at this promise, which it is, from a little wider perspective. Do you really want God to give you whatever you ask for or click on in your prayers? Frankly, we should all be thankful that He does not give us everything we ask for or require of Him. Because he is omniscient and I am not. He may, or we may ask, he may say no, we may not understand why, but that does not change the fact that he has a bigger and a better plan for us than we do. So let's step back and see if we can determine what the it here is. Because they, they correctly identified it. It's the it that we're looking for. Now, uh, why is this promise, looking at context here, come at this point in the Sermon on the Mount? Okay? Some believe that Matthew 7, perhaps the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, is just a collection of sayings that somebody threw together. Okay? Maybe somebody was following along and writing them down and, uh, you know, through a, a wide span of teaching. But I think we know better. It's all related. It's all connected and it all makes sense. What is the context of chapter 7? Okay? Everybody remember what we've just been studying for the last couple of months? Context is judgment. Remember? Judge not lest you be judged. And we, we've learned that, you know, life is prep school for eternity. In review of verses 1 through 6, we discovered that we must, we must exercise judgment 
but never unrighteous judgment of others because we are presently, we are presently under His judgment and the works of the saved will be judged to, be, to determine our reward in eternity. Jesus makes clear that we are not to condemn others, prejudge, or even judge without taking the facts and circumstances into account. But beyond that, we must judge ourselves before we go looking at what might be a problem with somebody else. Remember, the log in our eye must be removed before we can even start to look at the splendor in his. And he said, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you again. So you might say the world is round. What goes around comes around. When we judge ourselves, however, we see how weak and sensitive and selfish and prideful we all are. So to deal with our own problems first is a pretty tall order. How can we ever live the Christian life exemplified and taught by Jesus? That's the question. So now you see the context in which we receive this rather mysterious answer. Ask, and it will be given you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened. That's the context. So the standard of the Sermon on the Mount, and pretty much all of Scripture, makes us all feel unworthy, helpless, hopeless, desperate for His grace. And here it is. We've just got to avoid being distracted by false teaching which focuses on temporal things of this world. Rather, believe and apply the promise in its full context. The verse says, it will be given you. So this helps us understand what the it in the verse really is. And something tells me that for most of us, it's not a jet or even fewer pimples. Okay? The question this verse raises, or the questions, are searching. When you think about this, why are our lives so spiritually weak? He tells us it's all available, but we don't take advantage. Why don't our lives exemplify the teachings of the Beatitudes and the rest of the Sermon on the Mount and all the examples that Jesus gives us? This promise offers it all. The Lord analyzes this and shows us why we, shall, we fall short, why the door isn't sometimes open. He gives us certain conditions in order to enjoy and rejoice in what he has offered. So the first condition is that we must first see our need and then see his grace. Uh, back when I was a teenager, there was a thing called the Jesus Movement. Okay? And uh, I, I, I was thinking skeptically about it, and you'll see in a moment here why, but, but it occurred to me that I came to the Lord during the Jesus Movement. I don't know about Mike, but it was all part of the aura that was out there. In fact, Jesus became such a popular figure, there was a stage play, and I think even a movie called Jesus Christ Superstar. 
which I think is a distinct demotion when you bring him down to being a superstar. But that was the culture back then, at least kind of a subculture. And I was going to do uh, Stump Bill with Name That 70s Rock Band, but I just didn't have time. You, <laughs> come on now. <laughs> All right, he got it right. He would have got, well, I don't know if you would have gotten the picture, but, but he figured it out. Okay, the Doobie Brothers have a song that says, Jesus is just all right with me. And then it goes on, Jesus, he's my friend, right? Which is kind of strange because anybody remember what a doobie was? Okay, it was illegal until today in places like Colorado, okay? So that's how crazy that time was. And here's the point. I'm trying to make. Most love to hear about Jesus and what a friend he is and how loving and kind he is. And certainly that's all true. However, people do not like to hear about their need for Jesus, their sin, or as we just talked throughout this last semester, what Ray Comfort would say is, that they need to put on the parachute because the plane's going down. It's too uncomfortable to sit in your seat with that parachute on. Without that awareness, Jesus might just be enough to feel good or to have a good time with. But as believers, if all we ever talk about are the, the wonderful life with Jesus and the wonderful eternity with Jesus, pretty soon it can sound to an unbeliever listening in like the promises of the latest weight loss program. Without knowing how sinful we are, without knowing our need for cleansing from sin, we can always be wondering, maybe it's just a little bit better to be over somewhere else where we're free from these moral constraints that our friend Jesus places on us. If Jesus is just my friend, well, maybe there are better, more fun friends elsewhere. Yeah, Jesus is enough to save us, but from what? Now, Mike covered last week that uh, we are not under the old covenant of the law. And Paul states, Categorically, we are under grace, not under law. We've got to be careful to think, what does that mean? Okay? We can put aside the ceremonial and the dietary laws and the, the traditions and all that. But let's think. Is it really okay to lie, steal, covet, commit adultery, or murder? In a sense, we are all still under that law because Jesus affirmed these things. He said, when we lust, we commit adultery in our hearts. When we get angry, we commit murder in our hearts. Of course, all of us want to keep that law and certainly we want others to keep that law because if they don't, what do we end up with? Chaos. 
and anarchy. Isn't that just exactly what we're seeing in our culture as a result of the rejection of God's moral standard? Of course we're better off keeping God's moral standard. Listen to me carefully here. The purpose of God's law and his standard of righteousness is not primarily that we keep it. But the purpose of God's law is to make abundantly clear our inability to keep it perfectly. To be righteous. And our need for Christ in our hearts in order to live a Christ-like life. And then to recognize His grace that He paid due to our abject failure to keep that law. Does the law serve a purpose? The same Paul says the law was our schoolmaster. For what purpose? To bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. Lower the law and you dim the light by which man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. For it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest weapon when you have set aside the law. You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. They will never accept grace at all. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. The spirit of the law condemns us, and this is its useful property. It humbles us, makes us know we are guilty, and so we are led to receive the Savior. In other words, the law lays bare our desperate need for Christ. That Jesus Christ is our friend, but he is so much more than a friend. And but for his loving sacrifice for each one of us, we would all be guaranteed a seat with a one-way ticket to hell. Because we can in no way live up to God's law and his standard of perfect righteousness. But we're never going to see that need until we see ourselves as paupers. God's approval rests on those who are truly poor in spirit. Those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and inability to conform to the standard laid out by the Savior in the Sermon on the Mount. To be saved, one must first see that need and second, see the riches of grace that are in Christ. That's God's perfect justice is satisfied only by his perfect love. And it is only those who realize these two essentials who can truly ask, seek, and knock. It is only the one who says in his heart, O wretched man that I am, who is truly seeking deliverance. From there, we can start to realize the possibilities that are in Jesus So we're going to go over the next one, which is persistence. Now, some believe that the sequence ask, seek, and knock is significant. And it may be, but I think rather that it's not so much an order, but it's simply a message that we are to be persistent and persevere. Now, we see the parallel passage in Luke 11, 
where Jesus explains the same concept with a parable about a neighbor who comes knocking in the middle of the night for bread to feed a late arriving guest. And the word that some commentators use to describe this request is importunate. Okay, and that means a plea that is so persistent or demanding that it becomes annoying. Uh, in Luke 18, Jesus told the disciples another parable for a particular purpose, and that is specifically that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. This one was about an importunate widow who comes before an unjust judge persistently until the judge finally gives in to her demands just to get rid of her. Now, have you ever stopped and realized that you're, you're not doing so well in your Christian walk, maybe in your prayer life, or your Bible study, or maybe you've got some besetting sin? Okay. Now, people will oftentimes resolve to change things. Maybe a New Year's resolution, something like that. Best of intentions, totally genuine. But then something happens to upset all their best laid plans. On a bigger scale, the contemporary Western church is not characterized by fervent prayer. We prefer, we prefer to do things, you know, hustle and bustle. Uh, and it's often hard to tell the difference between the church and a well-run business. Um, I don't see lion and lamb at all as, as having a business model. However, at least in the past, there have been, I think, some weaknesses in this area of, of prayer. I am so encouraged by the faithful women who've been meeting for years, and I'm really encouraged by what, what uh, the young people are trying to do to get all the men together to pray regularly. That's wonderful. But, you know, years ago, we, we tried to do a Sunday evening, I think, uh, prayer meeting, and, you know, after a while, there was one too many people showing up. Could it be that our low spiritual power is somehow related to our weak or non-existent prayer? James admonishes us, do not, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. Now, there are several reasons that people often give for this lack of commitment to pray, and some feel it's because that prayer is inappropriate. After all, God knows what we need, and we shouldn't try to force his hands. But the reason that God's gifts depend on our asking is neither because it is he is ignorant of our needs or that he needs persuasion. The command to ask has nothing to do with him being forced to give but rather whether we are ready to receive. He doesn't spoil his children with gifts. Rather, he waits for us to recognize our need and then turn to him in humble dependence. Others glean from their experience that prayer is unnecessary. I mean, they look around, they see lots of folks who are doing just fine without prayer. They seem to get more without than we do with prayer. And they reason that it must be effort and hard work and performance and initiative or just blind luck that gets us what we want. But we've got to recognize that there are different types of gifts. Back in Matthew 5, in the context of loving our enemies, 
Jesus advises on becoming children of the Father. And he says this very curious thing. For the Father makes his Son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, it is true that God provides certain things to folks who do not ask and pray. Now, we might call this his creation gift. Some call it common grace. This is not to say that you shouldn't pray for such things like daily bread. He tells us to pray. But that's because that prayer demonstrates a heart that loves and is daily dependent upon the Father. But there are other things that come only by asking. Can you think of the first one? It's salvation. You don't get saved unless you ask. In Romans 10, Paul tells us that it is those who call on the name of the Lord who will be saved. God doesn't favor certain children over others, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. And these riches we might call his redemption gifts. Now, these gifts are not material. They are spiritual. Now, we, we'll get back to these later, but I think we can safely say that prayer is necessary if you want these things. Others will say that prayer is unproductive. Okay? This view finds it ironic that prayer seems unnecessary because of God's creation gifts to those who do not pray, but his withholding of certain gifts from those who do pray. And often people falter in their faith because of unanswered prayer. So, requests for a, a good job, healing, or victory in a game that don't yield the result we want makes us sometimes conclude that prayer just doesn't work. Again, we've already seen how this view makes us kind of like Aladdin using our lamp of prayer to call upon God as our genie and give us what we want. Remember, God's hands are much more, much safer than our own when it comes to knowing what is best for us and what furthers his plan and will. So back to our point here. The only way to receive benefit of any kind of commitment, repurpose, or resolution is to persist. Seeking is just another form of asking, and knocking might be a little, little more intense. Just like the persistent woman who sought after the judge for justice, Jesus asked rhetorically, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? We are to persist in our petitions until we get an answer. Persistence is a vital part of the walk of any Christ follower. If we really want to be men and women of God, to know him, to walk with him and experience the blessings he offers, we must persist. Ask, seek, and knock day after day. What does that mean? Let me state the obvious here. If you're not praying daily, you cannot ask, seek, and knock. If you don't ask, you do not receive. Christ followers must feel a hungering and thirsting after righteousness in order to be filled. And we must go on hungering and thirsting. Even Paul, that giant 
did not stop in his pursuit. Philippians 3, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of Christ. So to summarize the second condition, we begin by asking and seeking, but we must stay in the fight of faith, always to pray and not to faint. Not just what we desire when we desire a blessing or to have a specific need met, but always we must realize our need and understand the abundant supply that he offers and persist in seeking after it. The next one is we must see him as our father. Verse 9 gives us this specifically, and this is really the central principle of it all. Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? This is the realization that God is our father. Here again, Jesus uses that a fortiori argument, lesser to the greater. If an earthly father will give you one thing, how much more will your heavenly father do for you? And this points out one of the greatest weaknesses that Christ followers have. We do not fully see and understand God as our Father in our day-to-day lives. If we did, we would be much more confident, have a much better outlook and demeanor in the face of adversity, setback, and trouble. You know, we have a tendency to see our Heavenly Father as we see or saw our earthly Father. And we tend to frame our requests according to the character of that earthly Father. And this view doesn't always serve us well. If the child with a wealthy but detached father will approach God with arrogance and demand what he wants. A child with an angry or abusive father will seldom ask for anything from his father out of fear of the next outburst or beating. But the child with a kind and gentle but firm father will not fear to go to him in honor and humility and ask freely, assured that his father will never give him anything from his wisdom experience that is not in that child's interest. Regardless of how you view your father, this is how we must view and approach our heavenly father. To be clear, controversial in some circles I'm saying, but he is not the father of all as in the unbiblical concept of the universal fatherhood of God. Beyond that, he is not even our father by nature, and we are not his natural children. Why? Because we're the children of wrath. Psalm 51 says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now be clear here, the sin was not the procreative act of the husband and wife. It is the nature that we acquire from Adam. Jesus said to his disciples, if you then who are evil, we not only do evil, we are evil by nature. So if we are evil, how how do we become, how does he become our father? John 1 tells us, He came down to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Being evil by nature, 
there was no contact or communication with God, nor were we heirs of any of his promises. We were sinners who were headed for and deserved wrath and punishment until we became his children by our spiritual rebirth. By being born again, we received a new life and a new nature. We received the Holy Spirit, the spirit of adoption of sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Next, we've got to know that he never gives us evil and he never makes mistakes. You know, there's another positive stated in the negative. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? Now, whether you had a good, bad, or fair to midland dad, your heavenly father will never give or do anything to you that is evil. Now, having said that, I don't want to sugarcoat or gloss over problems that we have in life. We have talked in the past many times about the issue of pain and suffering and its reality. And I'm sure we'll talk about it again. But for now, the thing we should remember is that the safest, most secure place to be is in the hands of the Father who is perfect truth, perfect justice, but more loving than anyone, any other that you can ever imagine. The last condition that we're going to look at today is he gives great gifts. How much more will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? The question is, what are these gifts? The best gift after salvation is spelled out in the parallel passage in Luke 11, where it says, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Now, that's a comprehensive gift. Peter puts it this way. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises so that through them you might become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Why would anyone want the Father to give them whatever they ask? That's asking for a distant and a very, very poor second, if not disaster. Instead, Jesus asked, says, ask and it will be given you. The it to which Jesus refers is the thing that he knows is good for us, starting with salvation, then going on to our ultimate perfection. Anything that draws us nearer to the Father and enlarges our lives. He will not give us any bad thing or make any mistakes. His promise is that if we seek those good things, daily forgiveness, deliverance from evil, peace, more faith, hope, love, joy. In other words, all the things exemplified by the life of Christ. He will give those things to us. We see this in the Lord's Prayer. Forgive us our debts. Deliver us from evil. If you want these gifts, realize they're given only in answer to prayer. Let's get to the application here. Ask, seek, and knock. The way Jesus teaches about prayer sounds so simple, but there's more than meets the eye here. First, to pray, we must know for what to pray. 
God gives gifts only according to his will. To know his will and the things that are good for us, you know what you've got to do. You've got to read your Bible. But you've got to study it, meditate, memorize it. Next, we must all have faith, no doubt. Knowing his will does not mean we have confidence that he will cause his will to be done. Faith is that confidence in our Father to do what is best for his children. Finally, if we know and have confidence, there's still wonder of the thing required. We must desire his will to be done for us on earth as it is in heaven. And your daily persistent prayer is the primary means by which you and I express our deepest desires. So, to recap, we've got to both see our need and His grace. We've got to be persistent in our prayer. We've got to see Him as our Father. We've got to trust that He never gives evil, never makes mistakes, and we've got to know His gifts are great. We cannot escape the conclusion here. He says it plainly. It is up to us, you and me, to ask, seek, and knock on the door in order to enter into the blessings that he promises absolutely. Father in heaven, you are a great and awesome God. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you do not give us everything that we want, but you give us what we need and what is best for us. And you have promised us that you will give us those things that will draw us closer to you, that will build us up. So, Lord, work in each of our hearts to come to you regularly, daily, individually, as couples, as a group. Come to you and ask, seek, and knock for those things in our lives. And receive the promises that you offer. We know that you are faithful. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.